Hey, you guys. I mean, I've been quite quiet about this recently, but I'm going to Edinburgh in a few days' time. So come and see myself, Duffy Connors, and Shannon Jahan from August 1st to August 25th as the tick boxes delivering you that stand-up comedy goodness at 6.45 at Dropkick Murphy's. I probably already just said that, but I can't, I can't remember because this fucking heat wave we're getting right now in England is insane. But... Nonetheless, we are carrying on, and my gosh, do I have a good guest for you today. Um, this is Mr. Andy Field. He's a stand-up comedian. He grew up in Crawley, and in this episode, we talk about our breakfast rituals, um, the stand-up circuit, and also a little show called Parks and Recreation. So yeah, please welcome Andy Field. Cooking, Andy Field. How you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah. As I said, it's too hot, by the way. Oh, mate. Thank, thank you. Thanks very much. That's yours. Perfect. Yes, mate. Thank you. Yeah, I haven't actually had breakfast yet. I haven't actually had breakfast yet. This is. This is. Uh, I don't. I've, I've stopped having breakfast. Really? Through uh, pure laziness. Mm. So I tend to just like barely eat at all, mm. and then eat as much as humanly possible mm. in the evening. It's not healthy, no. but it is what I've been doing with my life. But it's got you here today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what's most important at this point in time. Exactly. So, have you lived in London your whole life, or where? No, I grew up in uh, Crawley, okay. which is like next to Gatwick Airport, like between London and Brighton. And then I went to uni in Southampton, mm. and then when I finished uni, I moved to London. Okay. I've been here for like five or six years. Okay. But yeah. Have you found the? Oh, screw that question. Uh, what got you into comedy? I just always wanted to be a comedian. I wanted to be a comedian when I was about twelve. Uh, I started writing stand-up as soon as I could, really. Wait, you started writing stand-up at 12? Yeah, yeah, oh, but then I started gigging when I was 17, and when I actually came around to doing my first gig, I looked back at all of the things I'd written across the course of my childhood, and none of it was usable at all. <laughs> it was all terrible, so I had to write like a five-minute set in the space of a week. Um, but yeah, it's just always been the aim, and I started doing it and then just refused to stop, and it's gotten gradually better as it goes on, you know? Do you remember what you, where was your, do you know, did you perform at all when you were 12 years old or did you No, no, I mean, I like, in Crawley I found that it was quite like, it's not a very arty place. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Crawley's not particularly arty, like, none of my friends really liked comedy and things, and really? just, uh, it seemed like, yeah, it was a bit sort of, uh, I was the only person I knew who liked it, so I was basically just sort of waiting to t- to get old enough to just drive myself somewhere else to do gigs. I always find that a bit weird when I meet people that say they don't like comedy, but you don't like to laugh? What is wrong with you? I don't know, all my friends from childhood are like plumbers and carpenters, none of them went to university, yeah. half from such share Tommy Robinson memes. <laughs> We've grown up to be different people, I think. Yeah. I, I held off doing stand-up until I got to university, pretty yeah. much. But um, it was always the aim, yeah. But I always found, well, I usually find that people who do manual labour have the best senses of humour, so I find that a bit odd that they have a disdain yeah, for comedy. But then also, I'm a bit like, I'm a slightly alternative comedian, ah. I'm a bit silly and funny. I think if I was Al Murray, they'd be so <laughs> proud to know me, you know? But, um... Uh, yeah, they, they, I mean, they've got senses of humour, but it's all just sort of like quite like 
80s working man club comedy uh, you know what we would consider to be not politically correct so the Burning Mannings Jim Davidson's and oh yeah 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 they'd, they'd love all of that shit to yeah. be fair I quite like I quite like Burning Mannings I think he did serve the character he played served a purpose for the time he's got a really good joke I still remember yeah it was actually it might be slightly racist ah, but it's, right, it's, okay. a, it's a well written joke unless it's completely racist <laughs> no, no, actually, no, no, I don't like it unless yeah. it's completely racist so if it's only slightly racist I'm not I'm not going to be happy. To, to be honest, it's wordplay, but it's fully within the Bernard Manning character. Good. So, so he goes, a uh, fellow walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder, and the barman goes, where'd you get... Oh, no. Uh, what is it? No, that's wrong. <laughs> oh, God, what have we done? I remember the punchline, but I can't remember... The setup. No. Oh, Okay. Wait. It will all be edited, so it may, so we'll make you look like someone. We'll make it seem like I remembered it. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember it, but the punchline is Africa. There's bloody millions of them. <laughs> but I can't remember how it goes. That's a good. Well. Okay. Cool. <laughs> or it's like a guy walks into a pub with a parrot on his shoulder, and the bartender goes, "Where'd you get that from?" And he goes, "Africa." There's bloody millions of them. Africa. But that's how I'm remembering it. But it must be wrong. It must be like a black guy walks into a bar with a parrot. I can't remember. Or I've forgotten it. We'll cut it out. <laughs> something to do. Something to do with black people and Africa and Bernard Manning. Yeah. Involved. So okay. the, it's as if the bartender goes, "Where'd you get that black guy from?" But then yeah. he talks about the parrot. But I yeah. can't remember how it goes. Basically, Bernard Manning is a genius, but he's not politically yeah. correct. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, you can be a good joke writer with horrible yeah. morals. That's it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and you can be a terrible joke writer with great, with great morals. Yeah. Yeah. And both are both are boring for me. <laughs> so, so you brought um, Al Murray. I think that's quite interesting you bring him up because um, I really like character. I do. I have a bit of a weird relationship with character comedy. Yeah. Some, because I've got a friend. Well, I've got a, not sorry, a friend, but I know someone on the, on the circuit who uh, does a who does a character, and he gets really annoyed when people ask him to do the character and not be himself. Yeah. And I think with like the people like Al Murray people see him as the pub landlord yeah well that's the issue is my yeah. friends are the sort of people who like Al Murray because they don't get it yeah do you know what I mean they I don't get I think that's something he's had a problem with for ages because he's yeah. sort of like a relatively lefty like yeah. smart guy who's done this sort of pastiche of like a working class pub landlord yeah. but then I feel like the people I grew up with are the people who were like taking it at face value yeah. and not as like poking fun at this identity but more relating to that identity because they enjoy it. Yeah, and that's definitely Al Murray's specific problem that he bumps into. Yeah, but the character comedy, yeah, I mean, I've never really given it any time because I think character comedy is great. However, you want to do it is the best. But my main aim is to be able to just get up and do an hour's stand up, mm. regardless of whether there's anything in my pocket. You know, mm. I don't want to have to bring props and things. It's a ball like. You don't want to be like a character top, like bringing shit out of your suitcase or whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, if I was character top, I had a residency in Vegas and just some <laughs> room to keep all my props in, I yeah. would. But I'm not taking a suitcase with me to Birmingham to do a 20, you know? No. That's not happening. <laughs> of course not. So, what was I going to say? So you, started a, so, you started at 17, right? Yeah. Can you remember what it was like doing your first gig? Yeah, I do remember. I think it was... Um, I was just purely excited to be there. And I feel like my, my general, like happy-go-lucky like excited vibe I've gotten a lot more like calm as I've gotten older 
when I was very young, I was just full of enthusiasm. Yeah. And I think I just like foolishly, enthusiastically got my way through that first set and it went really, really well. Mm. And then I got quite cocky and in my second set, I overran so hard that oh, the God. tech turned off the lights and the microphone <laughs> so that I'd leave the stage. I must have done like 15 minutes. It was my second gig. It was not okay. Oh, God. <laughs> I got too confident. Hmm. So where did you do it? Do you remember? Yeah, it was in Southampton. Um, actually, no, I was probably 18. Yeah, because it was when I went to university. So I was That's 18. still really fucking young, man. That's good. Yeah, well, that was the, an issue I found doing stand-up at 18, was I was always doing it to audiences of people who were much older than me, yeah. who just sort of, like, instinctively resented me. Yeah. Because I was quite, like, young and excitable, and just going, yeah. like, oh, aren't, isn't the blue sky so nice? <laughs> just, like, talking about rainbows and things. And I was just looking out at audiences of people who had, like, mortgages to pay, <laughs> and they all just didn't like me very much. But I found, like, the older I got, the more I sort of kept my age to myself. Yeah. Like, between, like, like 19 and, like, 23, I just sort of never mentioned my age and yeah. left it up for, you know, if you think I'm older than that, then that's fantastic, so it'll make you less... Uh, Judgmental of me. Yeah, yeah. More, more likely to like me. Because I think when you're doing comedy, you sort of want people to... Yeah, pe- people laugh more when they like you. Yeah. And I think if you're 18 and you're quite, like... I was quite detached from sort of what reality was because I'd always wanted to be a comedian and I went to university and I was just like a student doing stand-up and I had no real life experience whatsoever and it just sort of um, annoyed people. Mm. So, but that was also quite good because that meant that the first few years of doing stand-up were like a real uphill difficult struggle. Yeah. Uh, so by the time I got older and I got better at it, everything started to fit into place. And that's gratifying, but I did have to get through a few years of just being like obnoxiously young and not very funny. I mean, I started it when I was 27 and I'm 28. I'm 28 now, so I'm only like a year and a bit. I'm only a year and a bit in. Yeah. But I think when you start so anything young, when you start anything like quite young, so to this degree, like say stand up, yeah. um, you don't have the wealth of knowledge that you may need to actually do it well yeah massively I think some people start doing stand up that's what I found frustrating because in my head having wanted to be a stand up comedian since I was like 12 I sort of like when I started doing stand up I was thinking like right I've got to get successful within like two years so that I could be like the young, the, the young up-and-comer on TV smashing it. Uh, and then that just never happened at all. It never happens. Not yeah, happened, yeah, never happens. Happen. Well, it does happen if, you know, your, your dad happens to be a comedy agent or something. Michael like. Whitehall. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's when it happens. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I can't, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to succeed as quickly as possible. And then I realised that uh, the most likely way for me to succeed was just to not stop. Yeah. and just to keep trying to get better at it and that's basically constantly been the aim I don't think you ever stop getting good at stand-up no so I've been doing it for about 10 years now Right. I intend to keep getting better at it because I think as soon as you go like this is me this is as good as I can be yeah. and then you show up to a gig and you die on your ass and you go oh I've died on my ass and I'm as good as I could possibly be where do I go I now give up. yeah but if you constantly keep the yeah you're, you're not you never stop getting better at stand-up so yeah. if you're ever shit then you go all right then well next year I'll be better you the, know the trick. If you don't stop you keep getting better yeah. 
I think the trick is to learn something from every gig that you do, whether it goes good or whether it goes bad. You always want to yeah. take something away from it to see how you could improve yourself. Yeah. Whether it's some... yeah. I think that's really good technique for the first few years, definitely. I have recently reached a point where, I mean, when I started doing stand-up, I was in Southampton. So for the first three years of doing stand-up, I would be like in Southampton, uh, Bournemouth, um, sort of like around the south coast, never really coming to London for gigs. So I did so many sort of like terrible gigs in like pubs around the south coast. Like I got, I ended up doing quite a lot of gigs, maybe like two or three a week, but none of them were well attended and so many of them were sort of like jarring and awful. And I found that when I was really young, I was sort of just ex- enjoying that experience of learning from being there and going like, even the band gigs are useful. But after about 10 years of doing it, I do find now that if I show up to a pub with no one in it, uh, there's not a lot for me to learn, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like after a certain point, after doing hundreds of open mic nights with no one at them, there does come a point where you've, you've learned mostly what you need to learn from those. Um, yeah, I, I think the further you get, the higher, the more you want from the gigs that you're doing, and the more you just go like, oh, I've like, I've learned, I've already learned this lesson maybe like eight, nine, ten times. Yeah. So I don't necessarily want to learn it again, but I'm here, so <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. Uh, so, have you bridged, have you managed to bridge the gap yet between open mics and getting booked at clubs yet? Yeah, yeah, I have. It was difficult. Especially being quite a weird stand-up comedian where I'm not necessarily doing like classically club things. Yeah. And I think when I started doing stand-up, I was really reluctant to sort of um, uh, make any concessions as to like the artistic process and stuff. And I'd be like, you know, this is what I want to talk about. This is what I'm going to talk about. People don't like it. Fuck it. Whatever it is. But then as I got older and I had more bills to pay and more sort of like adult responsibilities, it became clearer that like. I have a skill set here and I need to be able to monetize that skill set if I want to do this as a living. So I started to work more on like um, tweaking bits so that they work for, for clubs and not yeah. just to like stone teenagers or whatever <laughs> it was that I was aiming to appeal to at that time. So I have done that. It's still difficult for me to book in a lot of club gigs but I have reached a point where I do them well which is nice. So I didn't necessarily see that happening you know, when I was 18 and I was weird, I thought, I'm just going to be a weird comedian and I'll make money from being a weird comedian. But then you realise that unless you've got a really big following and you can book a tour on your own or something and go around art centres, there's not a lot of money to be made as a weird comedian unless you can, like, pop yourself in, put different hats on and, and tick the boxes that these other profitable things need you to tick. And I think it's just pragmatic to sort of work on that skill set. Um, yeah so I'm doing clubs that's good and they're nice I still do a lot of open well I don't actually do very many open mic nights anymore I do to work stuff out but I'll still try and do them at like like my agents book a new material night on the boat opposite um, the London Eye oh what's that what's that called it's called the guinea pig club okay Um, so every Tuesday they run that so I'll go there sometimes so it, it seems to be more recently now that the kind of gigs I do that I'm not getting paid for are still sort of like an offshoot of like professional nights and they have lots of audience and things because 
yeah, like I say, I mean, I think I'm, I'm getting a bit too world weary to keep sort of travelling an hour to not have an audience. Mm. Um, maybe I'm getting a bit more picky, but it is, yeah, I think the further you get, the more the more enjoyable the gigs are, really. Mm. I think it's such a, like, a steep hill, because in order to get to that point where you're doing nice gigs, you have to have such a tolerance for terrible gigs, because you're going to do loads of them. Um, but I think if you can if you can enjoy what it is that you're doing, if you can just find joy in even dying on your ass, mm. if you can be amused by that, then there's nothing really to stop you from continuing and repeating and eventually if you keep working on it you get to a point where the gigs you're doing are like actively much more enjoyable and then it's even easier to continue you know the higher you get the less you have to fight against which is what to aim for really I think that's a great answer that's a fantastic answer brilliant (laughs) thank you no that's alright like because as I said I've only been doing this for a year so like these I'm essentially doing these podcasts to get information from other comics who are a bit yeah. above, who are a bit above me, who yeah have been through the situation, who have been through yeah. what I'm currently going through right now, just after a year and a bit in, yeah, and thinking about how to move, how to move forward, and where to go. To yeah, move. I mean, I think you just can't like a. It's I think it's death to compare yourself to other people. Yeah, especially with stand-up, which is such like an individual thing. Of course, the amount of people I saw do their first gig, who then like went on to completely overtake me like having done it for 10 years yeah. there's people who started when I started that are on TV I see them regularly I've reached a point where if I watch Mock the Week I'll, I've met those people Seriously? And, and, and some of them I met like when they were newer than I was but I think if you compare yourself to others you're just fucking it what, you, what you've got to do is just focus on getting better at stand-up just in your own right it doesn't matter what other people are doing it's an individualistic Mm. expression anyway some people are just going to be set up to nail that zeitgeist you know whatever it is there's a gap they need to you know there's no Scandinavian you know comedians someone Scandinavian comes along who's brilliant and they rock it up Mm. it's also to do with when you start because I started when I was 18 I had no idea what I was doing it took me years to work out what I was doing some people start when they're 25, 26, 27 they've had an interest in life up to that point and they've got a wealth of material and they can just get an agent like within a couple of years you know they just happen to be in the right place at the right time and rock it up Mm. whereas for me I just sort of had to acknowledge that it wasn't going to happen as quickly as I wanted it to but it would happen well you don't know if it's going to happen for certain, but you do know that it definitely won't happen if you stop. Yeah. So you keep doing it, that's and that's the only way to keep the door open. I completely agree. You can't prepare yourself. It, it is difficult though. Some it is difficult oh, yeah. though sometimes when you see someone who is just as good, if well, or a little bit better than you. Yeah. And you just think, what have they done that I haven't done yet? What are they, what are they doing that I'm not doing? It? But they're just being themselves. And yeah, yet, exactly. And that's what you just kind of, that's what I've got to kind of remember whenever I see what someone else yeah. posts on Instagram or about them doing the comedy store or whatever else. So yeah. I just got to think, okay, that's their lane. That's fine. Yeah. 
I'll probably get there eventually. Just got to go. That, I just got to take my own part. But you also have to remember that all of these comedians are like insecure about where they are in their career. Yeah. Like, because when I started out, I would see comedians who were arguably where I am now, yeah. and I would imagine their lives as like, oh, they just sort of have a nice day, go get paid to do a gig that goes really well. Yeah. Everyone knows who they are. Yeah. Um, and I just sort of like daydream about having their lives. And now I'm in a in a similar position where I'm just still constantly going like, how did they get that? How did they yeah. get that? You just start comparing yourself. Wherever you are in comedy, you'll be comparing yourself to someone who's a couple of notches above you on the ladder. Yeah. And unless you're like Ricky Gervais or Dave Chappelle or someone, there's always going to be people a couple of notches above you on the ladder. But it's then not they... something that goes away necessarily. Yeah. But in Ricky Gervais, there'll always be someone above him. There'll be there'll always be someone like a couple of notches above him. Yeah. Like, they may not be around anymore, but he'll probably be still looking at the likes of um, Bill Hicks or um, Williams. Yeah, yeah. How but, did he get this? How did he manage to put this? How did he manage to put this audience? That is true. Yeah, I think the uh, the further you get with it, the more you compare. You know, yeah, you're always comparing yourself to someone. And eventually, you just get to a point where you're comparing yourself with people who have died, like yeah, Robin Williams. You're like, oh, I'll never be Robin Williams. Well, no one will be. That was. But it's yeah. You don't really. You don't. I don't think you really reach a point where you go like, I'm done now. Mm. I'm great. You know, like even if you're on TV, you might have been on TV last week, but if you've got nothing in your diary in the future to get back on TV, then you go like, oh well, maybe that was maybe that was it, and you start hustling again. It's just a sort of constant thing, mm. but because everyone is always just succeeding at different rates and you're always comparing yourself to everyone else that's how people get really demoralized and stop doing stand-up because mm. they just go however long oh it's been five years i've not gotten there i did my first gig with this guy and he's gotten here mm. what's the point in trying but yeah the point in trying is because it's fun so you have to keep doing it do you think that that, that sort of re- that could sort of be a reason why the likes of Eddie Murphy and I don't know Chris Tucker or someone like that. Maybe they stopped doing. Maybe they stopped doing stand up because they knew that they wouldn't reach the levels of other people who've gone before them. So they've chosen to go down the movie route. I don't know. Well, I think also there's a different idea in America sometimes of uh, seeing stand up as a route into sort of movies and television. Yeah. Whereas sometimes here it's seen more of like a career in its own right. Yeah. And I think also because they've got such a thriving movie industry that like you get to a point and then people want to put you in movies, you know. Mm. If we had a Hollywood in London, then they'd be looking at like, you know, getting Jason Manford into a film or whatever it is. But because there's not really that thing, we don't focus on it as much. No. But I think also with American comedians, you get, if you get the point where you're doing stand-up and then you're doing films, someone wants you to do a TV show or something, you end up having so many things going on in your life that you have to start prioritising. Yeah. And if someone's going to offer you, you know, 50 million quid to do a movie, or you can stay at home and try and write a new hour of stand-up and then workshop it and then tour it, and that takes like a year of your life, you probably go, you know what, I'll do the film for 50 million. Finish that film, someone offers you another film. Before you know it, it's been 10 years since you've done stand-up and you're completely out of the loop. It's not, I, I wouldn't imagine it's always like a conscious decision to leave it behind. Yeah. But I think the more successful you are, the more things people offer you, and um, the more sort of life gets in the way of that kind of single-minded determination to write jokes and do, you know. I was watching um, the new series of Comedians in Cars, and um, Eddie Murphy's on the first episode. Yeah. And he actually said, "I'm going to try and come back into stand. I'm going to try and come back into stand up, but it's just got to be the right. It's just got to be the right time." Yeah, yeah. 
but that's the other thing it's like because Eddie Murphy is thoroughly off the bike you yeah. know like he's he's stopped doing it so even for someone like him he knows that if he's going to start doing it again he needs to build up those skills because exactly. you do forget them and then yeah hasn't Netflix offered him like 70 million pounds for a special or for something spe- probably something mad um, yeah so I'd expect Eddie Murphy to come back but then some of his stuff has aged badly it has <laughs> it has aged badly that doesn't for me that doesn't make it any less funny yeah that just means that it couldn't have got released today in today's world yeah but I also think that's a nice thing about stand up because yeah. it's sort of representative of the time yeah you know so like we don't necessarily look back at Eddie Murphy things and go like oh god what a backwards awful time we yeah just sort of think of it as like a snapshot of reality right there that was the time that was yeah. it back then but it's not just that stand up though they do that in films and everything now um, like have you seen Ace Ventura recently no I haven't like there was a scandal a year well not exactly a scandal but someone pointed out like a year ago that they had a transgender character in the actual in the film yeah and when Ace Ventura found out that she was that she he kissed a man he starts like being sick he starts like being sick <laughs> but that's the thing is you don't even have to look that far back in the past I was watching The Hangover the other day mm. and they've just got a bit great where, film great yeah, film but they've got a bit where they pull up outside Ed Helms's house and just go uh paging Dr. Faggot yeah and, yeah. and you just go oh couldn't do that now but, but what, that, when was that 10 years ago that was, that yeah, that was exactly 10 years ago that was it how did that so how did we become so sensitive that's the, that's the question though. it's not necessarily about like I don't think comedians have gotten more sensitive I, but, I don't mean us like us too I mean like I don't mean comedians I mean like the world in general the world outside of yeah. our bubble because I think what, what, yeah. I think the whole sort of uh it's, it's, it's more than just me too but it's, yeah. it's, we've reached this point now where sort of previously being famous was this really coveted thing yeah. that you know um, only only special people got to have and they had sort of like a PR team to keep them from anything coming out and I think we're reaching a point now where in order to allow people to have such privilege to be famous and to be popular and to be entertainers who make millions of pounds, we're holding them to a higher moral standard we yeah. hold ourselves to. And I think that's that's fair, really, because it's such a such an enviable position to be able to make millions of pounds and do what you love and be a creative and be an entertainer. Um, and previously we didn't hold people to that account we were almost like quite impressed by like these, these bad boys who would, yeah. you know get get drunk start fights whatever it is but I think um, yeah the more we're going for inclusivity the more we want everyone to be represented mm. the more we want to represent uh, the best of ourselves in every yeah. area rather than sort of giving giving that that adoration to yeah. people who are more um, reprehensible as people I mean I'm I'm genuinely all for like inclusivity and progressiveness right I'm really all for it yeah however I still think that you can make a joke out of any situation in any group oh 100% I think you can yeah, yeah. but I think it just has to be more the joke has to be good yeah and it's about the target of the joke as yeah, well yeah exactly think, you know you could make a, wor- a, a good wordplay could be about any subject whatsoever yeah. but you also have to look into like who if there's a butt of the joke is that butt of the joke like a victim or something yeah like I was my girlfriend teaches stand up courses sometimes and um, she was saying that one What's of her who, who is it her name's Tamsin Kelly okay she's very funny she's great um, and she was saying that 
she had a student who was doing a bit about like what they looked like and she was saying that she looked like a heroin addict yeah and it wasn't landing very well it was kind of jarring and the reason that's not landing very well is because that the sort of those are victims of society yeah you know so so it's like when people say oh so i look a bit like a crackhead you know yeah. you're, you're drawing a comparison towards real people having yeah. a real hard time whereas yeah. you know you could make that same joke be more creative and say oh sorry i look like i've been dragged backwards through a head or whatever or oh, I, look, I, look, I look like keith richards on a good day yeah yeah exactly exactly but because think, then you're not really punching down yeah because he's above keith richards is above everyone yeah and yeah, yeah. But we know that he's done every single drug known to man, so you're still saying you're like a drug addict. Yeah. But you're not punching down on people who are probably suffering from drug addiction. Yeah, exactly. So there are ways to make. We don't have to stop making these jokes, but yeah. it is sort of pragmatic to consider whether your jokes are making light of someone's situation, which shouldn't really be made light of. But well, yeah. you can make light of anything, but you know, if you're if you're making a silly little joke that may potentially make a person feel bad about themselves yeah. or have negative memories or whatever it is, uh, it's not that you shouldn't do that joke. It's just that you've written that joke in not the funniest way it could be written yeah you know so just tweak it and make it better and i think you know getting people to think about these things is positive you know is it is it damaging comedy i mean i don't know i think it's probably driving people to think more about what they're saying and to be more creative and to yeah. work harder at work harder at it and you know i think if you can't do comedy without uh making certain groups of people feel bad then you should probably not do comedy well you should think about what it is that you're enjoying like yeah. do you specifically want to make groups of people feel, feel bad, bad yeah. or or can you do it without doing that yeah. so I think you know if you want to be the best stand-up comedian you could possibly be the best stand-up comedian in the world you should be capable of being just as funny without um, being a dick yeah that's right yeah <laughs> it's all about just not punching well it is sort of it's about it's just about knowing your audience and who's actually in the room at the time isn't it yeah I mean yeah, but they also are like I would never say you can't make a joke about anything yeah but if you told me a joke I would probably think of all of the different ways in which you could do that joke differently yeah. those different ways might not be better some of them might be better some of them might be worse it's all subjective but I think if you've got a joke that offends people you could probably write it differently you could write it differently so this whole so the whole progressive and me too thing is actually sort in a way and I want to say it's a good thing yeah but well. it's allowing people to or allowing comedians at least yeah to say the same thing they would have said yeah. but in a more clever way which is yeah yeah undoubtedly a much better thing yeah i mean if you're going to be a professional stand-up comedian you need to be creative and you need to be able to think you know in a in a in an in-depth and creative way about the things that you're saying and you know if you can't come up with a way to say something that's not uh, potentially controversial then either don't say it or think about why that is but um yeah, I think it's, yeah, I don't know. Well, Spe- speaking of creativity, yeah. um, what do you think about comedians going on greatest hits tours? Totally fine with it. Honestly, like, if you get to the point where people want to see you do stand-up, yeah. and you can tour, and you can do stuff, um, I mean, to an extent, I think also, 
comedians in the UK have this thing in our heads because of Edinburgh yeah. where you go like you should be coming up with a new hour every, every year. year you know yeah. it's what George Carlin did Louis C.K. followed in his footsteps doing that and like to an extent obviously I think that's a really creatively fruitful way to approach things but also I mean for my part having done like five different hours at Edinburgh um, I would say that like I could probably make the best show I've ever done by taking all of the best bits from those five shows, you know? Would that be um, disrespectful to my audience? I don't think it necessarily would be, because it would be me making the funniest show I could possibly do. Obviously, audiences will get annoyed if you go, like, brand new stuff, and yeah. they show up and <laughs> you do the same old things. Eddie Izzard got in trouble for that, because the way that he writes his shows, apparently, is he'll, like... He'll start his new tour with the show from his old tour, yeah. and he'll, like, gradually change it uh, and come up with new bits and feed them in so that by the time he finishes that tour it'll be a completely different hour of comedy but when you go see it first people were complaining that like oh I've, I've seen this before everyone's got their own way of doing it but um, if, if you can announce hey I'm going to go on tour and do all of my funniest bits and you can buy tickets here and everyone buys tickets why not you know yeah. you've, you've got, a, got a mortgage to pay for you're a comedian that's your skill set and it'll probably be a really fun nice show hey the musicians can do it why can't we yeah fuck it I saw Bob Dylan the other day did you yeah yeah he was playing really you know he's been playing those songs since he was what 18 where, where was it it was at um Oh, Hyde Park. Hyde Park? Oh, yeah. good. It was, it was Bob Dylan and Neil Young. It was great fun. I went with my mum and dad. Nice. <laughs> Rock and roll. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We got fast. So, um, Hyde Park. Um, did you see Robbie Williams there as well? Was it, was no, that? he was there like the day after Bob yeah. Dylan and Neil Young, which is a fun, like, those are different yeah. demographics. Um, no, missed Robbie Williams. Would have gone seen it, though. He's one of those. He's one of the few acts I really want. I know he's not the best singer, but I really want to go see him live because he has just got it. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got, got that the character. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. No, I, my girlfriend really likes Robbie Williams, and I've sort of like gotten into him by like proxy. <laughs> I was listening to Rootbox the other day. Do you know Root, that song? Uh, Rootbox. It's uh, one of the worst songs yeah, I've ever heard in my terrible. life. It's um, terrible. Yeah, I'm considering playing it on loop as the walk-in music for my Edinburgh. Show, yeah, just because it's so bad and it will really annoy people. I think that's funny. But he references how bad Rootbox is in his uh, intro to all of his shows because he does like a God Save the Queen oh, really? uh, sing along. Yeah, and like, one of the lyrics is like something evil, something about him even making Rootbox. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a line in Rootbox where he says, dance like you're in the Special Olympics. Ah. So there's, like, even even just the most recent Robbie Williams songs, you can find things that would cause, like, outrage now. But, but I think that must, that must have been in the height of his drug use. Oh, he sounds like he's yeah. off his tits and getting bad advice. I've yeah. listened to that song a lot. <laughs> it's a shocker. Mm. Yeah. But it's crazy, like, how, just thinking about it, how many hits he's had... Oh yeah. Like just going back over the last twenty something years. No, he's a beast. Yeah. It's great. I'm a huge Robbie Williams fan. But then it's not it's not just him though, it's like loads it's like loads of people who are just like coming back now and doing tours where you just think, Holy crap, you've been going for absolutely ages. Yeah. How have you managed to keep this going like 40, 50 years old? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I was in the same room as Robbie Williams earlier. Where? I was in. I went. I got for some reason. I got invited to ITV's like summer party, which is like some big thing they do every year. And Robbie Williams was there. And I just spent the whole time just staring at him, going like, God, he's aged well. When was this? It was last. Wednesday. Nice. Nearly a week ago. Did you, speak, did you speak to him or did you just... I did not speak to him. Did you just I like did gaze into yeah. his eyes? Yeah, I looked at him from a distance. I stood very close to Ross Kemp. That was exciting. Okay. Shorter than I thought he'd be. Oh yeah, they always are, aren't they? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a really odd one. Even my agent, like, they sent the invitation to that party to my agents. And then my agent contacted me going like, I'm not sure how this has happened, but you've been invited to this party. <laughs> Why? So what were you doing there? Um, I don't know. I did I did, uh, I did uh, the stand-up sketch show which is like a show on ITV2 really ah. that's, that's the only thing I've done for ITV but um, yeah I don't know they'd invited me and a few other comedians but not very many I mostly just hung out with Adam Hess do you know nice. Adam Hess yeah. yeah he's very funny um, but I think all of the comedians that were there were like slightly confused as to why they were there except for Joel Domit who's just been announced as like the new host of an ITV Saturday night show so it made sense that he was there yeah but uh, yeah for me I was like I don't know why I'm here <laughs> well he's kind of like the ITV golden boy now isn't he because he won the he won the um, I'm a celebrity a few years ago yeah, yeah he won I'm a celeb he's been presenting that Hey Tracy show yeah that's the thing as well is it sort of becomes like because I remember seeing Joel Domit when I first started um, and he was still really funny and he was still sort of uh, you know this sort of like handsome young yeah. man yeah. but it still takes years but then I think sometimes it just like all happens at once to an extent like you get one thing then you get another thing and then you get another thing and it all escalates you know well he was in the jungle and then Almost as soon as John came out, and he came out of the jungle, he had a book out. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's smart. Yeah. Also, these are these are pumps you're taking, you know, because like Joel, Joel entered the jungle, won yeah. it, and now he's he's boosted. Whereas like Sean Walsh has strictly come dancing, and, uh, gets God. done for making out with his dance partner, and now yeah. he gets so much grief on Twitter, you yeah. know, like. Whereas feasibly, those could have gone completely the opposite way around. Yeah. You know, Joel might have shit himself on the first day of the jungle and gone home with dysentery. <laughs> Sean might have won. Sean might have won. You know, strictly dancing. It would be completely the opposite way around. And you've just got to take these punks sometimes. Mm. But like we were saying, of like don't compare yourself to other people. Exactly. Chances are that Sean Walsh is sat at home going like, oh man, you know, if only I'd done the jungle instead of if dancing. I, I, finally, I, I finally hadn't um, kissed someone who was on national television. Yeah, yeah. But you know, and then 99% of the comedians in the country are probably looking at Sean Walsh going like oh god I wish I had his career whereas yeah. he's probably looking at the 1% of other people going oh god I wish I had his you know? yeah. but I think we all do that though. I think that's what yeah. like, we all have someone that we compare ourselves to Yeah. but it's important to look at well, look at where look at the lane that we're on yeah. and walk down it appropriately if that makes if that makes any sense whatsoever yeah I think if you keep doing stand up you keep getting better at stand up so that's all you have to do that's all you should ever be focused on really you know the only sure way to not succeed as a comedian is to stop being one how did you get the ITV show uh, oh that was a weird one so I was I was in Edinburgh last year doing a show and my agents put on like a showcase where nice. they got like uh, eight of us who were on their books and we just did like an hour long show in uh, uh, Gilded Balloon or like an hour and a half long we all did ten minutes each and then after that, uh, the guy who was sort of in charge of making the show, Matt, came up to me and said, um, we're making this TV show, or that bit you just did on stage would fit perfectly for it. And then I think I filmed it maybe like two weeks later. Um, yeah, so that one just happened immediately. 
that's the other thing that's that's just being in Edinburgh you know because so many people won't bother to go to the Cavendish Arms or whatever and watch an open mic night but they'll they'll bother to go up to Edinburgh for a week and just watch as many shows as they can sign yeah. up everyone should go to the Cavendish Arms just for an hour there <laughs> go to the Cavendish Arms it's a great gig yeah but that's the problem though because when I started doing stand up I was doing open mic nights in pubs in Southampton I was half yeah. expecting at some point to come off stage and an agent would give me their card <laughs> and be like you, you got something you know and then you think oh maybe that'll happen in London but yeah. honestly it doesn't agents don't bother going to comedy nights that often if their own acts aren't on it and if yeah. they do go they're going to watch their own act and then yeah. have a talk about it and go home yeah. um, it's really hard to get seen by agents how did you get seen? I well alright I so I won the Chilton Student Comedy Awards um, but I won it I won it after I've been doing stand-up for five years. So I entered every year I was at university, when I was 18, 19 and 20. I bombed out in the first round every single time I entered it. And then I had a year off, and then I did a Masters, and while I was doing the Masters I won it. But then, even then, so I, I won that award, and in my head I'd given that award so much sort of significance, and I assumed that sort of like the comedy industry would be so interested in me as soon as I had this award, and then, then nothing happened at all. No one got in contact with me, it, basically nothing happened. I ended up going to New Zealand for like six months, because my girlfriend wanted to go, my girlfriend at the time had wanted to go travelling, and I'd said, you know, if I win this, I need to stay here and build this career and then after a few months nothing had happened at all and I just sort of got depressed and went no fuck it alright let's go travelling I came back so while I was in New Zealand I saw a Facebook post that just said um, applications are open to do this like showcase run by CKP at the Edinburgh Fringe called like the uh, Afternoon Delight or something it was at midday they get like five unsigned comedians who do a set um, and it's a good way to get seen by agents so yeah. I just applied to do that they asked if I could come in and audition sure yeah So yeah, I applied for that. They asked if I could come in and audition. I said, no, I'm in New Zealand. Um, and they said, that's that's fine. We saw you at that short final, so you can, you're on it, whatever. So I came back from New Zealand in time to do Edinburgh. Um, and then at the end of that fringe, I signed with CKP because they'd had like 25 opportunities to see me gig, you know, which just wouldn't have happened. But it was pure chance that I happened to see that Thing on Facebook saying it was open um, if I hadn't applied to it I would have never known that they were in the audience in the first place yeah um, you know perhaps there were other agents I could have emailed off the back of winning that thing that would have said yeah we just saw you we'd love to meet you or something but I just didn't know enough how it works and I sort of yeah. expected people to get in contact with me so it ended up being that I won a national award and nothing happened for a year um, but once I did get an agent, it became easier. They, they opened doors, you know, they, they helped me. Because until then, it had been like six years on my own, just doing stand-up, booking all of my own gigs with no real support, no one really checking if they went well or like guiding me in the direction or going, you should talk to this person, you should talk to that person. I'm quite like insular. So I was mostly just showing up, doing gigs and going home again and not getting anywhere for about six years. Mm. Um, so having an agent is exceptionally helpful for 
breaking through that. There's a lot of glass ceilings to yeah. get through in comedy. Yeah. But um, agents definitely help you get through them. But getting seen by them in the first place, hard. You know, yeah. really hard. Would you recommend doing the new app competitions first before you do before you look for agents, or do you reckon it's okay just to go straight for the agents? I mean. No one's, you know, it's it's not bad to send emails to agents, you know. No, I don't think any agency is going to say, um, no, we're never going to sign you because you sent us a speculative email yeah. in 2015, you know. Like, there's never any harm in getting contact with people. But equally, new act competitions are probably the best way to get yourself seen or, yeah. or to get any kind of, like, clout. Yeah. A lot of people have a go at competitions, and I think they're oversensitive. Yeah. Um, if you don't want to be judged, don't do comedy yeah um, you're always being judged that's just it. because there's more of a definitive thing in a competition you know I did the amount of I did the Leicester Square competition oh did you I uh, I, I, did, I entered that competition five times I, really? Yeah, and I only got to the final on the last one, and then in that final I was disqualified for overrunning. I got to the semi-finals three times, I um, and I literally never took it personally to not get through any of them because yeah. it's it's it's, totally, it's it's totally subjective. It's an art form, and you can't predict. But if you keep showing up and you keep getting better and you keep getting in a closer position. You know, and now I've done the final of the BBC one, I won the short one and the Leicester Square one, and all of that stuff added together was enough to get me enough clout to get in like the Pleasants in Edinburgh and that sort of thing. Did you do that whilst you had an agent or did you do that all before you had an agent? No, all before I had an agent. I had, um, yeah, I, I entered... I entered the Leicester Square one for the first time when I was 18. Same with the Chilton one. Um, I got, I managed to get the final of the Leicester Square one before I did the Chilton one. So I think 2014 was the final of Leicester Square. 2015 I managed to win the Chilton one. And then 2000, it was either 16 or 17. When I got my agent, they said, um, I, I said, oh, I've, I've been doing stand-up too long to enter the BBC competition. And they just said, I'll do it anyway. And then I got to the final. Nice. So um, I think, yeah, sometimes I think these things are a little bit bent in that they go, you know, if no one knows who you are, you're as good as a new act to them, even yeah. if you've been going for ages. So but, that's um, why you actually have done it for six years doing So You Think You're Funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So You Think You're Funny was my bad one. I managed really? to fluke through. I was 18. I fluked through the first round of that. And then they had me in the Gilded Balloon in Edinburgh doing like a live, you know, doing a round semi-final or whatever it was. And I just had the worst gig in my entire life. Really? I, I bombed. I was supposed to do seven minutes. I did 15. Oh, God. Um, because I just kept trying to get it back. In the end, I tried to tell him a story about a time I came on my own face. <laughs> but it wasn't even a bit of stand-up. It was just something that had happened. But yeah. I thought, oh, maybe there'll be something here in the moment. It's one of the worst gigs I've ever done in my life. But still, you've got to do them. They're fun, you know. It's an anecdote, at least. How did you end up coming on your own face? Um, uh, well, I was having uh, I was having sex, and uh, the woman was on top, and I told her that I would remove. So I, I pulled out, and then my, my dick just flopped down, and it just shot straight in my face. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, That's yeah. Amazing. I, I thought they'd be amused as well, but they seemed quite upset. <laughs> <laughs> do you tell me what they into a bit? 
It was a bit for a while, yeah. yeah. I've not I've not done it for a bit. But it's in the back pocket if I yeah. ever need it, you know. <laughs> I love that. I love the fact well not you coming on yourself, that's yeah. but like having stuff be put away and then just like bring it back out again just oh, in yeah. case yeah yeah I had to do a I had a gig maybe two days ago that I thought was going to be an Edinburgh preview yeah. it turned out I was just doing 20 minutes and the audience was mostly children oh god so instead of spending an hour talking about drugs and times I've shit myself I had to come up with a completely new set that was family friendly but thankfully I've been doing it for long enough now that I've just got like a mental Rolodex of things that take up time and aren't that offensive so so it was fine. How did that but, mi- how did that mix up come about? Like a family show to like, Oh, it was a weird one. Well they were doing like a, a all day festival in this art centre and like so I was scheduled to be on at half five and the next act was scheduled to be on at half six. So I assumed I was doing an hour. Um, but it turns out I was doing 20 minutes and then on a different stage they would have like an acoustic band while there was nothing on the comedy stage and that sort of thing. I was just scheduling, it was mixed wires. Yeah. But these things happen. Yeah, it's true. Alright, so, Parks and Recreation. Yes. Yeah, so McGoffin. Right. It's a weird one because I've already talked about Parks and Recreation with someone else. But we're gonna go we're gonna go in a completely different angle we're gonna go in an sure. almost completely different angle. Sure. Um, so first of all, let's say who's your favourite characters? Who your favorite, who's your favourite character and why? Uh, John Ralphio. John Thank you. Best we, character in the world. Five, yeah, 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 thank you. Technically I'm homeless. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Just every line he says I find hilarious. He's I, not in enough of it, but no. he makes me laugh really hard. But he he was more of a he's more of a regular player in the in the in the later seasons. Oh yeah, he's not even in the first season. No. He just sort of like gradually comes into it more and more. I mean, maybe if he was in every scene in a major character, I would end up not finding him as funny. Yeah. But almost because of how how sparingly he's used. Every time he's in a scene, I think it's the funniest scene I've ever seen. Like him and his sister are amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So Ben Schwartz plays him. Yeah. Um, I just think is I'm so it kind of upsets me a little bit that Ben Schwartz isn't bigger than he actually is. Oh yeah, definitely. Because he has so much charisma. Yeah. And he can deliver a line absolutely perfectly. Yeah. Like, I'm just so I'm, it just annoys me. That he hasn't yeah I'm still banking on a John Ralphio spin-off yeah know, that's that that would make my life no, yeah. no, we'll see how good Sonic the Hedgehog is then, yeah. we'll, then we'll talk about how to talk about his career <laughs> but um, yeah he's a great character he's yeah. I just think if he was in it more we'd get annoyed with him yeah potentially but then also what an annoying person it'd be fantastic you yeah. know like I, I, I almost want to see a sitcom about someone who's so exuberantly annoying that it's almost hard to watch yeah it'd be great but the thing is if they did a sitcom around him they'd water him down eventually true yeah yeah they'd I think to, they'd yeah, he's a wild card. Yeah. And that's the thing is you can't base everything around the wild card because you don't know what's going on. He is the best type of side character that you can have. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He can sing. He can dance. He almost has no idea what's happening. No. He's got terrible ideas. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love the I love the episode where Ben's going for the accountancy job. Yeah. And at the end, John Raffio is, well, John Raffio is also in the, is also in the interview. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And at the end, John Raffio is the one 
on that actually gets the job. But then he has absolutely no idea what it's or what um, what he's meant to be doing. So he gets fired before, literally at the very end of the episode before he even yeah. starts the job. <laughs> yeah, that's the classic Ralphio storyline. Yeah. I love it. And well, didn't he also have shares in um, Tom's um, Tom's Tom's kids workshop? Oh yeah, I think he did. Well, no, yeah, because his, his dad's his rich, dad, isn't he? Yeah, the yeah. one and only Henry Winkler. Yeah, yeah, the funds. What a guy. Funs, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Like, I think I love the fact that his character is essentially and he is so evil. Yeah. But you can't help but like him because he's such and he's so. I mean, Henry Winkler's like gotten onto this new thing where he's in just like so many brilliant comedies. It's really funny. So I think at first he was basically the Fonz, and yeah. then Adam Sandler sort of like ironically put him in Waterboy and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And now he's sort of in this thing where he's just in so many good. What's the new one he's in? Barry. You know. Uh, I Bill have Hader's not seen thing. it, but I think it looks amazing. It's Bill Hader is a hitman who does uh, who yeah. um, becomes an actor, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm it, pretty sure. Uh, yeah, I think Henry Winkler's in that. But I've not seen very much for either. But the amount of sort of, I just find it really gratifying to see like Henry Winkler is just like a nice old man, yeah, getting so many great roles and sort of getting the respect because he could easily just have become like a much much less famous David Hasselhoff, yeah. just sort of like a cartoonish joke from the time gone by. But uh, he's present, he's, he's working. I, I, love, think, I love the Winkler. I think him and Ted Danson are doing it at doing it perfectly. Danson's crushing it as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he's um the good place sending, and he's yeah. got an, and he's already got lined up another six. With eight with NBC and Tina Fey's producing it. Oh, perfect! Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, not going anywhere. No. <laughs> but yeah, back to Parks and Recreation. Um, so yeah, uh, John Ralphio and his sister, great characters. Um, do you think that Tom progresses an opposite character? I think he does. But also, I think, yeah, it's, it's a really weird one because I rewatched it recently, and I think the first season they're just sort of working out who all yeah. of these people are and how they interact. And then, you know, like Donna doesn't have any lines, all of these sorts of things. No one's making fun of Jerry. Yeah. And I think the further it goes, the more sort of. I think they get to a point where everyone's got these really clearly defined characters, and then they sort of go a bit further and start to like caricature all of these characters. And to be honest, if I wanted like emotional character depth, I wouldn't watch a sitcom. But Tom's really funny in everything he does you know yeah. I think um, yeah he's, he's silly he, he is exactly what he's supposed to be um, yeah I, w- I wouldn't criticise him for not having depth because I don't really want him to have any depth yeah. you know <laughs> but I think he I think he does sort of have depth because he grows he goes from this semi attempted to attempts to womanise everything yeah. with a vagina to actually wanting to have relationships with people even if they're the wrong relationships to have like him and Anne yeah yeah he does he does end up with more of a like a soft side yeah but I mean like even in the first season he's like married to a woman who doesn't love him and yeah. like constantly trying to win her over so it's, it's relatively consistent um, but yeah Tom Haverman's great mm. Aziz Ansari's great fun I saw him live and uh, I, feel, I saw him live a couple of months ago oh yeah how was that? It was an amazing experience. Is that the same show that's on Netflix? Yeah, now? yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was. He did the best of what he, I think he did the best thing he could do regarding the, situ- regarding yeah, the situation. Yeah. 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 Um, he addressed it in the best way, I think. Yeah. Like he kept us on the hook for a little bit. I yeah. mean, until the very end. And 
he did it in the best way he could, but I want to watch it again on Netflix because I was kind of sat there waiting for him to address it. Well, he addresses it out the gate on Netflix. It's the very first thing as he just, the special starts and he sits down on a stool and talks about the whole thing and then gets into the show. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that was all an extension of just sort of like, we had that big furore of when it first burst of like, yeah. you know, like we said, holding people to account. Yeah. Like if we're going to put people on a pedestal, make yeah. sure the people on that pedestal are the best of us. Yeah. Um, but I think specifically with Aziz, while people were like, you know, it, it wasn't a nice account hearing no. from the woman who went on a date with him, but yeah. it also wasn't like... It didn't sound malicious as no. much as it sounded like really poorly judged and just yeah. like a, a, a t- but I don't think anyone really heard about that and thought Aziz Ansari should never work again. I, but because there was such an intense sort of media storm around anyone yeah. caught up in any of that, it had a really like I think I think if that story came out now, mm. there would be probably less about it. Yeah. Just because it happened at a time when all of these things were kicking off at once and yeah. it was sort of and then and then he He's being spoken about in the same sentence as people who have done like objectively like wine more intense worse yeah. things. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm pleased to see him back to his stand. I don't think he's the best stand-up comedian in the world. He's not, not necessarily my favourite. No, but he seems to be, for all intents and purposes, a, a nice man who loves the craft. Yeah, and uh, it would be a shame if he wasn't big anymore. Like it was. I have never really watched him do stand-up too much before that night. I was like, do you know what? I want. I'm going to pay to see it just to see how he addresses it. Yeah. He was funny. He was so good. Yeah, like, yeah. He's always funny. But he was also, I mean, yeah, he's, I used to love a bit of his about R. Kelly. Yeah. yeah. That's aged as well. Because he had a whole bit about how much he loves R. Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> Can't yeah. say that anymore. Well, you know, times change and things move on. Funny saying that, I've got a bit about R. Kelly myself, so, yeah. That's... <laughs> Is it about how much you love him? Yeah, that's it. But yeah. that's it, how much I love him, how he does like, nothing wrong and he is completely innocent in everything. Yeah, totally fair, mate. Go for it. Let's yeah. see how it happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we got, yeah, so we're talking about Tom. What about Retta? Retta's great fun. Retta's great fun. I mean, like, I like that, that sort of. Um, She's an example of one of those things I quite like. It's also an example of, like, in the American office, you know, where you sort of start off with this, like, court cast with, like, ensemble extras. Yeah. And as it sort of grows and develops as a show, you end up with this, these other people. I think Retta's really great fun. Yeah. And it's an example of what happens with... It doesn't necessarily happen with British sitcoms because they're so condensed. You know, you have like six episodes per season, yeah. and you're done after three or four. Yeah. You know? But like with, I think the second season of Parks and Recreation is something like 20 episodes. Yeah. You know, and they did like eight seasons. Yeah. So, so you get to a point where you can kind of explore all of these things that you have to be like so analytical to have thought of before film. You know, yeah. like on, on day one writing the pilot have it in your head that this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen you're probably just not going to so you're not a super computer but I think the more time you give a sitcom the more it's allowed to blossom and the more you know yeah. the more connected you feel with these people as well 
you know. So Bretta didn't necessarily have much going on, but by the time she starts having lines, yeah, you feel like you already know her as a person because you've seen her have like the odd word here and there throughout yeah. this thing. And um, yeah, I think I think that character is a beautiful example of what happens when you mm. sitcoms have enough space to breathe. Like they sort of have, tend to have more in America. Like, according to her, 99% of her lines were improv were improvised. Oh really? Yeah. So she wasn't given a script. They said, okay, here's your situation. Yeah. They're going to say this. You need to react like this. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching a behind the scenes thing and they were saying that, because there's a line that really stuck out to me from one episode that I found really funny. And apparently yeah. Chris Pratt improvised it where um, Leslie's not feeling very well and he like just has to say something as she's like leaving the room. And he sat at a computer and he goes, uh, Oh, uh, Leslie, I googled your symptoms that says you might have uh, network connectivity problems. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great guy. It's fantastic. He's a great comic presence, isn't he, Chris, Chris Pratt? Chris Pratt's one of those funny ones that sort of, because of how much I liked Parks and Recreation, I found it really gratifying to see him sort of like hit to the stratosphere. Yeah. You know, like I think that's a nice thing to see someone from the beginning. I also had that with Ed Sheeran. I saw I saw Ed Sheeran at a festival, a really small festival in like Red Hill uh, in Surrey, like a year before his first album came out. And he must have been doing it to like, there must have been 60 people watching or something. And then a year later, I saw him at Reading Festival and there were like 150,000 people singing his songs along. And to say what you're, I'm not a massive fan of his music, but to have seen just sort of a human being trying really hard to yeah. see a, a, a millionaire, uh, you know, at the top of their game, I think that's really, that's a gratifying thing to sort of be a part of. Yeah. I think anyone who's been with Parks and Rec since the early days, you might think the new Jurassic films, part, Jurassic Park films are terrible. Yeah. But you go, Andy Dwyer. Yeah. You know? Oh, what a guy. Yeah. I want to see a Burt Macklin spin off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, ideally. Or Burt Macklin and John Ralphio team up. That's yes. the ideal buddy cop, buddy cop scenario. And with April's April's um, alter ego as the bad as the baddie. Oh yeah, what's her name? Janet Snakehole. Janet Snakehole, that's it. <laughs> From the Snakehole yeah. Lounge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It all ties together. That's it. Like, yeah. How do you think it compares to the American Office? Um, I think they're different programs. I, but I also think that the Office, I mean, the British Office, obviously with that style of making it, definitely originated Parks and Rec. Yeah. And I think um, that that whole sort of uh, talking head thing is yeah. a, is an angle that works. Um, yeah, I think I think they're totally different programs. I think the the American Office I prefer to the British Office, partly because I like to just binge television yeah, you I have to so. leave it on in the background like it's the radio yeah. you know? and with the British office I feel like it's sort of something that is best watched closely yeah whereas I think some of these series is where you've got like 25 episodes in a series you, you can just, just sort of put it on. on and drift in and out of yeah. it and just sort of feel comfortable in the presence of these people but um, I love the American office as well if anything the American office is is up there with some of my favourite one of my favourite programmes yeah I think I've mostly just picked Parks and Rec above it because yeah. I think Parks and Rec is more 
more its own thing. Yeah. You know, like, and, yeah, the American office sort of like grew from the British office and became its own thing. Yeah. I think also when you think about, so I'm at a point now where I'm trying to write sitcom pilots and that sort of nice. thing. And you're thinking about kind of the, the concepts. Not, the office is like the perfect one because what you want is a is a pretty much a set space where different people and different things can come in and, and occurrences can happen and it all spurs different storylines and different things you know that's ideal um, no no uh, you know that's what you want and I think yeah. Parks and Recreation is brilliant to so be in like a local government office because that's the other thing is coming up with one that hasn't happened yeah the most straightforward ones have all been done a pub cheers yeah. you know the office the office you know uh wherever else you know a group of friends hanging out in a bar every sitcom we've ever written yeah 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 a, a group of friends trying to make their way in the city friends yeah know? like the amount of the, all the all the straightforward things have pretty much been taken prison porridge you know yeah. like any anything you can think of someone's already done a good sitcom in that setting raising a family my family yeah 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 but I think yes I think a local government office is one of those ones that doesn't immediately go that's genius yeah but then when you see it play out the amount of different characters you know they've got like community leaders they've got yeah. people coming in to complain about whatever it is you know you could on, on page one of the, the script you could have someone walk in and go right my dog fell in a hole in yeah. your park that's your problem and you've got an entire narrative for an episode I think it's a really fun one I think I, I enjoy just how it's crafted and how how well placed it is I just thought this now right but if you think about it parks and recreation is on is on it it mirror it does mirror real life and how real politics works yeah yeah because in the town you've got a massive corporation Sweetums yeah, right yeah. which basically controls everything that the town's people consume listen yeah. to vote for everything even they have they even have um, what's his name Bobby Newport yeah. who is the um, son of what's his name New- Bobby Newport senior yeah, yeah running for running for mayor of yeah but they've, they've built a microcosm of American yeah. society yeah you know, they've got their own TV channel but it's like local TV and that yeah thing. and that's the really interesting part because so many times with these sitcoms you sort of end up sort of um, hampered by the context yeah you know like why would anyone bring up sort of um, you know why would anyone bring up these issues in a pub or in a prison or whatever but I think local government is such a fascinating one because you can sort of get you can talk about everything but keep it more calm than you know anything else like you know, they're not making the they're not making the thick of it and trying to get like, you know, hit hit hard and have it yeah. be gritty and realistic. It's a sitcom, but it's set in such a place that you can talk about relatively big things. It's great. Yeah, I think my favourite uh, my favourite supporting character has got to be um, Catherine Hahn. Oh, no, she is great. She is absolutely she's phenomenal. She's funny in everything she does. She's brilliant. She's so versatile. Yeah. Like, she is great. But in this, she... I like the fact that she's playing... She's not really a good character or a bad character. Right? She's sort of playing... 
She's playing a typical. She's playing a typical. Um, a typical lobbyist. She's yeah. just got a job to do, right? It's not. Yeah. It's nothing personal. It's just business, right? Yeah. And she even acknowledges the fact that yeah, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm just doing this for the money. I don't give a shit. About, I don't give a shit about Bobby Newport. He's an absolute idiot. Yeah. But I'm gonna make him win because I like playing a game of chess. And and I think my favourite line of hers, right? was just after she's given Leslie some advice on how to actually do the campaign where she looks into the camera and goes I love playing a game of chess I love something to the effect of I love playing a game of chess and sometimes for a good game of chess you've got to play against yourself yeah uh, yeah good line I like it I mean yeah it's, it's the other thing of like you know these other characters that come in that are like corporate interests and things they've sort of set up Parks and Recreation to be from the perspective of like the, the little guy and, yeah. and with Leslie Note you've got someone who is so like so earnestly positive and yeah. hard working that you're sort of representing the best of us through her. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like yeah you put the best of us up against all of these things that make life difficult like yeah. corporate interests lawyers heartless people it's a Beautiful thing. So, to kind of wrap it up, I think that Parts from America is one of the most diverse sitcoms of recent, in recent memory because you've got a strong female character, you've got um, a black character, you've got an Asian, a black and an Asian character in one sitcom. That rarely ever happens in America. Yeah, yeah and, they're, and they're not necessarily there to be like, the you, typical, know, like you know, because as, Aziz, Tom, Tom Haverford is like, he's he takes bits from Aziz's character and goes, yeah. I'm from North Carolina. You know, yeah. like where are you actually from North Carolina? Like yeah. none of them are there to tick these boxes or like to spur on storylines about like, oh god, you know, Tom's gonna teach us how to make curry. Like it's yeah. not that's not what they're there for. They're there because they're funny, you know? And that's the perfect thing, is to have that representation. Yeah. But not have it based on like stereotypes. Like and Donna as well, for example, we find out later that she isn't from some little girl, she's rich as fuck. Yeah, yeah, she's got a merc. Yeah. She's got a merc, she's putting the boys in it. Oh no, not my my baby, I know you did not just say my baby. <laughs> yeah. But she still had, but there are still some stereotypes that they do sort of stick to. She is technically still the sassy black secretary. True, yeah. yeah. Essentially. But, but know, then yeah. again, you can't have them all. Yeah, but it's but it's woke without that that yeah. wokeness being sort of like crowbarred in. You yeah. Know? It just naturally is representative of a lot of different people um, while being funny you know yeah. it's not like they've purposely gone alright now we need to write in a, a sassy black secretary you yeah. know they just have these people in it who are great on their own right and that's what you need that's what we're aiming for really yeah. so Andy Phil tell people where, they, where can they see where can they see you on social media where can they find you um, I'm on Twitter as Andy Andy Fields nice. because the singular Andy was taken um, and that's basically the way to follow me I have a Facebook page but I don't think I've posted anything on it for about a year and a half Okay. every now and then people like it I respect that <laughs> but um, you're not going to find out very much you will see some pictures of me doing stand up when I was about 19 though. Okay, so uh, if you want to like snoop on me I'd look me up that. on Facebook if you want to actually know what I'm up to look me up on Twitter okay so what have you got coming up Edinburgh Fringe leaving right. for the Edinburgh Fringe in uh, about a week same uh, I will be at 10 past 2 in the afternoon every day um, nice. and the show's called Andy Field's Funeral Andy Field's Funeral I saw that on Twitter yeah. and I love the fact that there's a message from your mum in inverted commas yeah yeah I've been pretending to be dead nice. and my tweets are from the perspective of my mum 
it's a complicated show. Basically, I've died, but before I died, I recorded a hologram of myself doing stand-up to be played in my place as like a memorial service. So the show is me doing stand-up while pretending to be a hologram. Nice. And it's, it's hard to watch. It's not enjoyable. But we've still got a week, so it's yes. going to be great. Okay, fantastic. Well, man, it's great to meet you. Good to meet no, you. Thanks for having me, mate. It's been a pleasure. So yeah, that was Andy Field, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As always, you can catch me on Twitter at your boy Gibbo, and on Instagram at Gibbogram1, and on my website, yourboygibbo.com. Also, as always, you can catch myself and Duffy Connors and Charlotte Jahan from August 1st to August 25th at Dropkick Murphys in Edinburgh from 6.45 as they ticked boxes delivering that stand-up goodness. All right, guys, see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.